All right, you can turn over in your Bibles to Romans. I just want to read for us a couple verses this morning. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Uh, We just came out of a little series, What is Your Mind Set Upon? And we've looked at the first couple verses here in Romans chapter 8. But today I want to ask you a very simple question. Do you belong to Christ. Who is a Christian? I think we need to define this because a majority of Americans think they're Christians, but obviously society and even the church does not bear that out. I want to take a little detour this morning from Romans, and I want you to turn over to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. And this is just way of introduction. But here we see the parable of the five wise and the five foolish virgins of Matthew 25. And I want to read this little parable for us that the Lord spoke. And then we'll just mention a couple things and then eventually get into our text in Romans. Matthew chapter 25, verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven, this is the Lord speaking, will be like ten virgins who took their lamps... And went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there is not enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy... The bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. What a sobering little parable that the Lord spoke on that day. It still 
rings true to our own hearts. I want you to notice a couple things here. Although each of these women seem to be what we would call believers, only five were actually taken to be with the bridegroom when he appeared, which means only five were truly saved. I want you to notice six things here quickly. Notice that all had been invited to the wedding banquet. They were all invited. They were all issued an invitation. The Bible clearly says that the invitation of the gospel is to the world. For God so loved the world. Never forget that. We never want to grow comfortable in a Calvinistic mindset that says, well, it's all going to wash out, so why even go share the Lord with anybody? Because those who are going to be saved are going to be saved anyway. Even though that is true, God still commands us a couple chapters later in Matthew to go into all the world and to preach the gospel. That's why we invest in missions. That's why we make it a point to travel to see missions and missionaries and even go and plan missionary trips for our own folks to go because we believe that the gospel has the power to save the soul. And that invitation goes out to everybody. Secondly, all belonged to what we would call the visible church. They were all part of the same group. Some were wise, some were foolish, but they were all part of the same group. And just for illustrative purposes, coming here on a Sunday morning and sitting in a pew or a chair, which is a lot more comfortable, by the way, does not necessarily make you a part of Christ's church. It doesn't work that way. There's a lot of people who seem to be part of what we would call the visible church. We've seen this past week, newsreel after newsreel of Pope Francis and all the pomp and circumstance that goes along with that. They all think they're part of the church. They think he's the head of the church. He's the vicar of Christ, they call him so. And yet not once in his addresses before our president or Congress does he even utter the word Jesus. I find that hard to believe. But according to the world, that's the visible church. Well, they all thought they were part of the visible church as well. They all belonged to what we would call the visible church. Thirdly, all professed to have the bridegroom as their Lord. They all did. Just now over in Matthew 7, there's going to be people that stand before Jesus one day and say, Lord, Lord, haven't we done this? Haven't we done that? And he's going to say, I'm sorry, depart from me. I never knew you. They all professed Christ. They all professed to have the bridegroom as their Lord. Fourthly, all believed in the Lord's second coming. They all knew he was coming back. They all realized that. Hence the preparation. 
Now, some were foolish in their preparation and some were wise, but they were all anticipating the Lord's return. And then fifthly, all were waiting for Jesus. They not only believed he was coming, but they were actually physically waiting for him. And then sixthly, the last thing here I notice is even they all fell asleep. (laughs) They all fell asleep. Nevertheless, only five were taken with the bridegroom. Only five were accepted. Five were not accepted. And when they cried to Jesus, Lord, Lord, open the door, he replied to them, I don't even know who you are. I do not know you. The point for us, as we approach this text in Romans is that professing Christians should examine themselves to see if they are truly in Christ. Knowing that a mere profession of Christ isn't enough to save you. I hope you understand that. We're instructed to have self-examination. We're instructed to have self-assurance, even, of our salvation. After last week's study, when we spoke of some of these things. A couple of you mentioned to me, boy, that made me begin to think. (laughs) That's not a bad thing. Um, See, there's not three categories of people in the church. There's not those who are not Christians and those who are Christians and then there are those Christians who just kind of live like they're not Christians. (laughs) That's not true. There's only two types. Those who are dead in their sins and thereby are unresponsive to God as dead people, just as much as a dead person would be unresponsive. And also those who have been made spiritually alive by the Holy Spirit and are therefore following Jesus Christ in true discipleship. You know, there's a little, you can put the slide up there with a little chart. Those who live in accordance with the flesh, well, look at, look at this little chart with me for a second. What they think about, their minds are set on the desires of the flesh. In the right-hand column there, you see those who are living in accordance with the Spirit. They're set on the desires of the Spirit. The ultimate end, those in the flesh, leads to death. Those in the Spirit leads to life and peace. The attitude toward God, it's hostility toward God if you're outside of Christ, if you don't have the Spirit of God. Whereas if you live in the Spirit, you're receptive toward God. You do not submit to God's law if you're in the flesh. But as a believer, we seek to fulfill God's law. We're unable to submit to God's law in the flesh, but we are able in the spirit because he gives us the willingness and the power to do so. And then the last thing there is very important, ability to please God. There's a lot of people who live according to the flesh who think coming to church or doing a good work or helping the poor or helping refugees or helping whoever somehow that's going to earn them brownie points with God and they're going to find uh, pleasure with God. That's, That's just not true because we cannot please God in the flesh. 
can't do it, won't happen. Those who live in accordance with the Spirit, we are able to please God with the works that we do because we do them by the power of the Spirit of God. Now, I acknowledge that some Christians sin. We all sin. Some of, sometimes we sin badly. Let's just be honest. But I want you to understand here this morning, a person who is on the path of discipleship, a person who knows Christ, gets up again and goes forward with Christ, while you know what? The unbeliever does not. In fact, the unbeliever is not on the path of true discipleship at all. Now, if teaching like this kind of rattles your cage a little bit, um, that's good. It's good that you're rattled. I think we've, as a church, have grown way too comfortable in claiming some salvation that took place years ago, but we don't see any end result of that salvation in our lives today. The Bible says in 2 Peter chapter 1, you can look, turn over there with me, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 11. I just want to put this in text. I want to focus in on verse 10. But 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of evil, uh, because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9, for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent. Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into eternal kingdom, into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. See, we should not ease up in this matter. We should not rest until we are sure that we really do rest in the Lord Jesus Christ. And see, we're studying here Romans 8. You can turn back to Romans 8. And the one thing that we started off this chapter understanding is the purpose of, of Romans 8 here is not to instill doubt in believers' hearts. That's not what we're about, but rather just the opposite, to give you assurance of your salvation. Romans 8 teaches that if you're truly in Christ, nothing in all of creation will be able to separate you from God's love, which is in Christ Jesus. Verse 39. And that's why having called us to examine our own selves by contrasting those who live according to the Spirit, those who live according to the sinful nature, and those who live according to the Holy Spirit, Paul continues to show us these things. 
And he wants us to understand who the real Christian is. His outline is kind of simple. In verse 9, he talks about the past. Verse 10, he talks about the present. In verse 11 of Romans 8, he talks about the future. See, the most important question you ever need to answer is this. Do I belong to Christ? Do I belong to Christ? Have my sins been forgiven? Am I assured of that fact? If you belong to Christ, then all of God's promises, beloved, are yes for you in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, it says, For all the promises of God find their yes in him, in Christ. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. See, if you belong to Christ here this morning, I want you to understand you are reconciled to God. You are brought back into the proper relationship that he intended you to have with him. All of your sins are forgiven. That you now can enjoy fellowship with him every moment of every day. And you know without a doubt that if you were to leave this life, if you were to die even right now, that you would go and be with your Lord and Savior for all of glory and all eternal heaven forever. So do you belong to Christ? You may answer that question by saying, yes, I've invited Jesus into my heart. I did it at vacation Bible school when I was a child. I'm glad to hear that, but do you belong to Christ? Oh, yes, I I prayed the sinner's prayer after a, a campus worker shared the four spiritual laws with me when I was in college. That's fine, but do you belong to Christ? Well, the worker told me that if I prayed that prayer, I could be assured that I'm going to heaven. Really? Where does the Bible say that praying a prayer will get you into heaven? Show me. It's not there. It's not there. See, we need to make sure that we belong to Christ based on not what we feel, not by our experience, not by what we've gone through in the past, but by what the Bible says. See, one of Paul's main reasons for writing Romans 8 is to give us assurance that when we believe in Jesus Christ, that we belong to him for time and for eternity, that all of our sins are forgiven. There's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And that's how he begins Romans 8 verse 1. There's no condemnation at all. And then he explains in verse 2 there, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. This is all that we have in Christ. The new life that the Holy Spirit imparts frees you from any condemnation that resulted from your own sin. Jesus, God's eternal Son, bore that penalty that the law demanded So that its requirement of perfect righteousness was met in Christ. Because we couldn't meet perfect righteousness. That is what Paul has earlier called justification. And we've been through all that. We've talked about that. Well, then Paul describes those who have been justified in verse 4. He says, they do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And he goes on to describe this contrast even further. 
Those who have not been justified are according to the flesh. They're unbelievers. They set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those who have been justified set their minds on the things of the Spirit, according to the Spirit. In verse 6, he says, For the mind set on the flesh is what? Death. But the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. See, we need to understand, those who have not been justified are in a state of spiritual death and separation from God. But those who have been justified enjoy new life from the spirit of life and peace with God. And then we see in verses 7 to 8, he explains even further this unbelieving mind, which is set on the flesh. He says, first of all, it's hostile toward God because it doesn't subject itself to the law of God. It's not even able to do so. For those who are in the flesh cannot please God, he says. See, those who are in the flesh are spiritually incapable even of trusting in Christ for salvation because they're innate rebellion against him. It's not something that you just do. And unfortunately, the church has kind of dumbed down the gospel to the point where it's just, well, just pray this prayer. Just say these words. Well, welcome to the family. Let's get you baptized. Now let's teach you how to be a Christian. There's a lot of people who are in our churches today that that's exactly their religious experience. And so they're caught between being viewed as a Christian, but they don't have new life in Christ. They've never been forgiven of their sins. They feel they have because somebody told them they have. But they still struggle with sin continually. And they don't really see any change in their life other than, you know, they kind of make themselves go to church because they know that's the right thing to do. And they know that when they're at church, they shouldn't do certain things. You know, they shouldn't cuss and they shouldn't smoke and they shouldn't drink because you're with church people. But when you walk out of the room and you go to your business meetings or whatever, well, then then you can do whatever you want. Because, you know, after all, you're punching your card on Sundays. See, we need to look at what the Bible says, who is truly a Christian. And so in verses 9 to 11, Paul turns to those who have experienced this new birth and he explains to them in verse 9, those of you who put your faith and trust in Christ, you, however, are not in the flesh, but what? In the spirit. In the spirit, he says. If, in fact, (laughs) the Spirit of God dwells in you. Because anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Christ, does not belong to him. Perhaps you're concerned for a loved one who died or troubled over the inevitable fact that, you know what, you're going to die Does this mean that you do not have new life in Christ? No. Paul goes on to explain in verse 10 that although your physical body will die, the Spirit has given you life because you are righteous in Christ. 
And although our bodies are going to die, the same God who raised Jesus from the dead will one day raise our mortal body through his spirit who dwells in us. But all that depends on this simple question. Do you really belong to Christ? Are you a Christian? What Paul is saying here, just to summarize it, if God's spirit dwells in you, you belong to Christ. And though your physical body will die, God will raise your body from the dead. See, when he saved us, when we put our faith, our trust in Christ, and God transformed us, we changed addresses. We changed realms from living according to the flesh to according to the spirit. We used to be in the flesh. That's what the Bible describes, those who have yet to put their faith or trust in Christ. We, live under, we lived under its ruling influence in our lives. But the Bible says now as believers, we live in the Spirit, under His rule, under the Spirit's rule who lives within us. First point here in the outline, you are in the Spirit if the Spirit of God dwells in you, which is a mark of everyone who belongs to Christ. This last week I did a little devotion at CC with the kids and I talked about farm animals. And I said, have you ever been to a ranch or a farm? And and what do you notice about the cows? Because if you've ever seen them out grazing, you know, sometimes you'll have multiple farmers having their farms, their cows, sometimes they get mixed up. How do they tell them apart? And one child raised it, well, I think they call them a brand. They brand them. Exactly. They take a hot iron and they put a, insignia on the kind of the rear end of that calf or somewhere so they know who it belongs to so it can never be lost can't be stolen it gives that animal security with the owner well the holy spirit is god's mark upon us he marks every believer with that deposit of the holy spirit C.H. Spurgeon calls verse 9 one of the most solemn texts in the whole Bible. He says this, It's so sweeping, it deals with us all, and it deals with the most important point about us. For to belong to Christ is the most essential thing for time and eternity. It is absolutely vital to have the Spirit of God dwelling in you because if you do not, you do not belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we've seen, Paul divides all people into two categories, those who are in the flesh and those who are in the Spirit. You know, you can't have your toe over here in the flesh and your other toe in the Spirit. It doesn't work that way. You know, we bought into that lie. Oh, well, they're a carnal Christian. No, there's not. There's no third category called carnal Christians. If you're claiming Jesus as your Savior, he has to be your Lord. You can't have him as Savior without him being your Lord. You can't say, well, I'm going to come to Jesus for salvation, but now I'm going to go do whatever I want. It doesn't work that way. That's not what Jesus taught. He taught sacrifice. He taught total reliance upon him. Walking away from everything. To follow him. 
Now, there's a process, obviously, sanctification of bringing every area of our life under the lordship of Christ, and that goes on for all of our lives. I wish it was so easy as you get saved, and boy, Jesus is Lord of your life, and you never sin again. But it's not that way, okay? God has to work on us. We go through a process. He makes us more like Christ each and every day, and he uses all kinds of events and circumstances in our lives, some good, some bad, to do that. That's why we can, as believers, find joy in all kinds of trials because we know that God provides those trials, those tribulations in our our lives as Christians to help us become more like his son, to ready us for heaven. See, if the, if the direction of your life is not, Jesus, you are my Lord, and I submit all myself that I am aware of to you, then you're not a Christian. I'm sorry. It's, it just doesn't work any other way. You're in the flesh. The Bible describes you as being hostile toward God. You're not subjecting yourself to his word. See, being a Christian is not a matter of going to church. It's not a matter of believing a certain set of doctrines. It's not about living up to a certain moral standard. That's not what being a Christian is about. Now, hopefully, all Christians do those things. If you're a believer, hopefully you should be in church. The Bible says don't forsake the assembling of yourselves. Okay, hopefully you're living a, a life of morality that is... is in subjection to the, the word of God so that your testimony in the world is one that's positive, not negative. But the vital thing is that the Holy Spirit has caused you to be born again. That's who a Christian is. I mean, Jesus said this very, very plainly over in the Gospel of John. Look at the Gospel of John chapter 3. Jesus said this very plainly to a man, a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews by the name of Nicodemus. Now, talk about going to church. This guy never missed church. He just didn't. He went to the temple to pray several times a day because that's what their custom was. He never skipped the religious observance to go fishing or the ball game was on or whatever. He didn't do that. No way. Talk about believing in certain doctrines. Nicodemus had memorized large portions of the Old Testament of the sacred writings in Hebrew. Just because that's what they were called to do. About morality, this man was just very detailed about keeping the Ten Commandments. And all the other ones that go along with it. But Jesus' opening words to him in verse 3 there, in John 3, he says, truly, truly, in other words, he's kind of saying, hey, pay attention here. (laughs) I'm going to share something important with you. Listen up. I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's great, Nicodemus. You got all this stuff. You got all your ducks in order. You know, you go to the temple, you pray, you do all these things. All that's wonderful. But you know what? I want you to understand, Nicodemus, very clearly. Unless one is born again, born from above, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And he went on to say there in verse 7, 
He said this, do not be amazed that I say to you, you must be born again. Jesus didn't back out, back off when questioned. Nicodemus wasn't getting it. He didn't dumb it down for him and say, okay, you know, here, let me, let me uh, make it easier for you. No, he gave him the same truth. Over in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Peter spoke of the same thing. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So God causes us to be born again. So many times we're out there evangelizing and we're telling people to do things they can't do. Well, you just need to repent. The Bible tells us that God grants us repentance. We just need to believe. The Bible says they're dead. They can't believe. What has to happen? God has to supernaturally open up their hearts and their minds and their eyes and their ears to the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And until he does, they will not be saved. And I don't know about you, but that makes me feel a little better when I go out and evangelize or I share Christ with somebody. Because when I'm in the middle of a presentation of the gospel and all of a sudden the store worker has an emergency and it's over. I mean, it's, you know, I didn't even get to the halfway through it. You know, I don't walk away from that situation going, oh man, you know, what if he dies and, and he goes to hell and, and, you know, it's all going to be on me. It's on me because I didn't get through the gospel with him. Oh, maybe I should go back and rip him out of his business meeting. And say, I mean, there is, a, there is a compassion that we need for the lost and there is an urgency in our message. Don't get me wrong. But don't ever buy into the idea that somehow you are going to save somebody. That somehow your little slick track with whatever you have and whatever, you know, evangelistic training you have, you go out and and somehow because of who you are and your personality and the way you speak, that you're going to save somebody. It's not going to happen that way. That's not how God works. That would glorify us. We need to be, now there's nothing wrong with using tracks. There's nothing wrong with evangelistic training. We want to do all that because it helps us better ourselves at conversation and turning conversations around to, so we could present the gospel. But we need to present the gospel the way that it's presented in Scripture. We don't need to dumb it down. We don't need to take the harsh words out like wrath and sin and the blood of Christ. No, we include all that in the gospel and we share it with people. And either God is going to open their hearts and they're going to believe or they're not. It's that simple. And so we need to make sure that we keep that in perspective. And that's what Jesus did here. He just kept on giving the truth. He said, you must be born again. First Peter says it's God who causes us to be born again. So when we're born again, when that happens, it's something God does to us. The Holy Spirit, he says, imparts new life to us. He takes up residence within us. It's a matter of spiritual life and death to have the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God dwelling in you. Now, I want to say this. Is there's some Pentecostal groups 
that teach that you must receive the Holy Spirit after you're saved. So in other words, you come to Christ, you make your profession of faith, and then, you know, they'll take you into a back room, prayer room, whatever it is, and, you know, they, now you've got to beg God for his spirit. And they base that on a misinterpretation of Acts chapter 19, verse 20, where, or verse 2, Acts 19, 2, where Paul encounters some disciples of John the Baptist and asks, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, well, we don't even know what you're talking about. <laughs> they said, No. Paul explains some things, he prays for them, and they receive the Holy Spirit. Now, without getting into a whole study of that, because that's a series in and of itself, it's important to understand that the book of Acts is a transitional book. It's a historical book. It's a transitional book from the age of the law when the Spirit was only given to some and actually could be withdrawn. It was more of an anointing of the Spirit of God upon those. It's from that age to the age that we live in today where the, the promised Holy Spirit in permanently indwells those who are born again. And there's a lot of texts of Scripture that point that out. So it's not something subsequent that happens at salvation. It happens the moment that God saves you. Romans 8 9 makes it clear that you, if you have been born again, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. If you don't have the Spirit, then you do not belong to Christ. Now, that doesn't mean to say that we don't need to be more sanctified in our Christian living. We don't need to give more of our lives over to the Holy Spirit. That's not what I'm saying. We should always be asking God for a greater presence and power that that he would be filling us more and more each and every day with the power of the Spirit. That's an ongoing thing. But we're baptized, we're, we're indwelt with the Spirit once at salvation. We're commanded to walk by means of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. And we're commanded to be filled, continually filled or controlled by the Spirit of Christ in Ephesians 5.18. But if you've been born again and you trust in Christ as your Savior and Lord, you do not need to receive the Holy Spirit because you already have the Holy Spirit. He dwells in every believer. Paul states it even negatively in verse 9. He says, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So he covers both sides, the positive and the negative, just so we get it right. If you have the Spirit, you belong to Christ, which means he bought you with his blood, that you are not your own. You're his slave. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 to 20, Paul also combines the idea of the indwelling Holy Spirit and belonging to Christ. He says this, or do you not know that your body is a what? temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you, listen to this, are not your own. For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. I can't help but think that the church would be very, very, very different today, church in general, not just this church, but all churches, if everyone would live daily in the reality of that truth. You know what? I am not my own. I belong to Jesus Christ. Repeat that when you get out of bed in the morning. You know what? My tongue is not my own. 
So therefore, I shouldn't be using my tongue to yell at my wife or my family members when I'm upset. I should be using it to glorify Christ. My eyes are not my own. Therefore, I shouldn't be looking lustfully at a woman or images that would dishonor Christ. I should use my eyes to glorify Christ. My money is not my own. I don't get to use it just however I please. I must use it to glorify Christ. My time is not my own to squander on whatever I want. I need to use it to serve and to glorify Christ. Parents, try this. My children are not my own. They're entrusted to me to be raised up to love and serve God. See, we, we, we really get it messed up, don't we? We forget all these things. And yet, that's a very life-transforming principle. The mark of being a Christian is the Spirit dwells in you, and now you belong to Christ. Notice how Paul interchanges these terms here in these verses. The Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus in verse 2. Why? Because he imparts the new life to us in Christ. In verse 9, he calls it the Spirit of God, indicating that he is God, the Spirit is God, and that he carries out God's purposes. He's called the Spirit of Christ because Christ sent him to the church when he returned to the Father. His role is to glorify Christ. See, when he was on earth, Jesus lived in the power of the Holy Spirit, Luke 4.1. He's also called the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead in verse 11 there. Why did he call him that? To emphasize that if he dwells in us, God will, through his spirit, resurrect this body one day. Paul moves easily from the spirit dwelling in us to Christ dwelling in us. One commentator says, what this means is not that Christ and the spirit are equated or interchangeable, but that Christ and the Spirit are so closely related in communicating to believers the benefits of salvation that Paul can move from one to the other almost unconsciously. Texts like these provide the raw materials from which the church later hammered out the doctrine of the Trinity. I mean, it's absolutely vital to have the Spirit of God dwelling in you. Because if you do not, you do not belong to Christ. But you know what? You're probably sitting there going, okay, but how do we know? (laughs) Right? How do we know if the Spirit dwells in us? Do I get some warm, fuzzy feeling? Does my head begin to glow? I mean, my glow is anyway because I don't have hair, but... You get a tingling sensation? I remember one day a family came and they sat through the worship service and on their way out at the door they were saying, oh, we just, we just sense the Spirit. We sense the Spirit in this place. We sen-. They kept on saying that. And I get what they were saying. Don't get me wrong. I understood 
But that's not what that's about. Um, How do we know whether or not the Spirit indwells you? Second point here, B, there are distinguishing marks by which you can tell if the Spirit indwells you. After speaking to Nicodemus about his new birth, Jesus drew an analogy between the effects of the wind and the effects of the Spirit there in John 3. Now, my sister, we used to sit on the the front porch and we'd be out there on a nice fall day in Pennsylvania and the wind would be blowing and the leaves would be falling. And she'd always say, look at the wind. (laughs) I never saw anything problem with that, right? Well, she got married to a brighter guy than the two of us. And the first time she said that, he just started, what? 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 You can see the wind? Oh, yeah, look. You know, and she's pointing to the leaves, right? You can't see the wind. That's silly. Um, You can see the effects of the wind, all right? You can see the effects of the wind, but you can't see the wind. I mean, stop and think about it. When a piece of paper blows by you, you're out in the field or out in the street, and you see a piece of paper blow by you, you you don't look at that piece of paper and go, wow, look, it's alive. That would be ridiculous. You wouldn't say that. You realize it's a, it doesn't have any life. It's a piece of paper. It's not flying under its own power like a bird or something like that. You would assume that the wind is blowing it. So it is with the Spirit of God. You can't see the Spirit, but you know what? You can see His effects. You can see the effects of the Spirit in your own life. In Romans 8, Paul shows a number of things that the Spirit does. Verse 2, he says, he sets you free from the law of sin and death. Verse 6, he gives us new life and peace with God. Verse 11, he's going to raise our mortal bodies. Verse 13, he enables us to kill our sin. We're going to look at that next week. Verse, 20, uh, verse 16, he testifies to us that we are children of God. Verse 26, he helps us to pray. In verses 7 to 8, by the way, the Spirit reconciles us to God and enables us to submit to his word and to please him. I mean, that's not a comprehensive list. That's just some of the things the Spirit of God does. But here's one negative to start off this little list. You have it in the outline there. And I just want to hit this because it's such a vital thing today in in the church in general. All the other ones are positive, but the first one was negative. Speaking in tongues is not a sign that the Spirit of Christ dwells in you. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I just want to make it very clear. We have to discuss this point because a lot of the Pentecostal denominations claim that speaking in tongues is a sign that you have the Holy Spirit. But that's contrary to what Paul's statement is. Because he says that all do not have the gift of tongues in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 30. So by that definition, if you don't have the gift of tongues, you don't have the Spirit. If you don't have the Spirit, then you're not a Christian you got a problem. It's debatable whether or not, you know, you can, I'll give you that. It's not debatable in my mind or in this church, but, you know, whether you believe in the gifts for today or not, we don't. We're cessationists here. We believe that they had a certain purpose and a certain time, and, and God moved on from that, and that's pretty much what history bears out. But you see a lot of the stuff today called tongues. It's nothing more than babble. 
It's nothing more than somebody just blah, 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 just going berserk with their, their lips and their tongue and just making up whatever. Whereas in the, in the book of Acts, the word for tongue was always language. It was a language, something that people could hear, something that somebody could discern and understand. And you say, well, what about the interpreter? It says that some have the gift of interpretation. Yeah, back in that time, because there were so many people from all over the world that came to hear the gospel, these men from Galilee didn't speak all these different languages, so God gave them the ability to speak supernaturally a language they didn't even know. Someone was here from Germany this morning and and they needed to hear the gospel in, in German and all of a sudden God allowed me to start speaking in German. That would be weird because I took French in high school and I don't remember a lot of that. So, I mean, it would be really weird. I do like gummy bears though. I think they're from Germany. But anyway, I just remember in high school, it was the German kids that or the kids that took German that always had, they did sales and they, they'd sell gummy bears. And I just fell in love with them from that point on. But anyway... Just a side note. I don't know what that has to do with anything. But if I started speaking in German and somebody out there said, wow, I'm I'm hearing this guy speak in German. That's amazing. And he's preaching the gospel. And that person's convicted. Well, what are the rest of you that don't speak German going to do? Sit there and what's going on? (laughs) Okay. Well, that's when God would raise up an interpreter, somebody that supernaturally could interpret. Wow. Okay. I'm going to share this in German. Okay, that's what that was all about. It was, it was a supernatural thing that happened. It wasn't something that you had to generate within yourself. And so a lot of even non-Christians today experience this phenomenon called speaking in tongues. People like Mormons, a lot of people in the Catholic Church, a lot of people in other cults experience speaking in tongues. And I guarantee you it's not by the Spirit of God. So positively, what about this? If the Spirit of Christ dwells in you, you have experienced new birth. You may not remember the exact time or the exact place, but you know that the Spirit of God has changed your heart. You know somehow something happened. You just know it. Second or thirdly there, if the Spirit dwells in you, you are drawn to Jesus Christ and you desire to know and honor him. Very clear. That's just going to be a desire. You're not going to have to generate that. It's going to happen. Also, you have been flooded with God's love so that you have hope in him. That the the hope of the gospel have just filled your heart and your soul. You regard scripture, fifthly, as his word of truth. And you are growing to understand it. You know, after I became a Christian, nobody had to sit down and say, you know, do you believe the Bible to be God's word? Of course I did. I mean, I came from a Catholic background, so I already believed that. But, uh, you know, I've never, you know, understood sometimes when people who claim to be Christians and yet... The very truth they're studying, they're questioning. They're doubting. They're not believing that it's God's word. And then the last thing there, his fruit is growing in your life and the deeds of the flesh are diminishing. In other words, you should be, see a curve going on there. Um, it's not the last thing, sorry. Seventh, you're having a growing hatred towards sin and a love of holiness. All right? You'll be growing in praise, joy, thankfulness toward God. You'll be growing in your prayer life. You'll want to tell others about Christ. Nobody's going to have to convince you to do that. You're just going to want to do it. 
Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says, But when you receive power, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you shall be my witnesses. It doesn't say, maybe you'll be my witness. No, it says, you will be my witnesses. You're not going to be able to restrain yourself. Because you're going to be filled with so much gratitude and the grace of God and the love and the joy. You're just going to have to scream it out to people. And we've all been around Christians that are like that. You know, they get saved and boy, they they just got to evangelize the whole earth, right? It's like, okay, you know, you might want to learn a little bit more before you start. But, but it's good. I I love the, the, the fervency in which they share Christ. And a lot of times it turns other people off, but, um, you know, hey, glory be to God. So here at verse nine, if you belong to Christ, you have the Holy Spirit indwelling you. And if he's the spirit of life. Some people say, then, then why do believers die? Well, the second point here is we who are in the Spirit are still subject to the physical death, even though the Spirit has given us new life. Just because we have the Spirit dwelling in us, it doesn't make our body supernatural. He says, if Christ is in you, in verse 10, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. The body means the physical body. When you become a Christian, it doesn't guarantee you this body is going to live forever. We're dead because of sin. That's the curse of death. That's from the very way back, Adam and Eve kind of stuff. We all die physically because Adam sinned. And that death remains as a penalty on the whole entire human race until Christ's work is finished, consummated, completed. That's what, why the Romans says that the, the, the creation is groaning. You know, it's yearning for this change to happen. So you have to really put that in perspective. So even though we're renewed in our spirit, one day we will, we will die. And that kind of puts us in a tight spot because we have the spirit of Christ living in us and yet we still have this old dead body that we're trying to make obey. And that's why Paul, earlier, we went through this part where he says, you know, I got to beat my body. I got to, you know, beat it into subjection. We'll get to that. Well, the third thing here also is we who are in the spirit have the promise that he who raised Jesus from the dead will also resurrect our mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in us. The instant we die physically as believers, our spirit goes to be with the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. That's what the Bible says. Now, our bodies are going to kind of be here on earth and decompose, whatever. But the instant Jesus returns, God will give us new resurrection bodies, which will be suited for the new heavens and the new earth. And, and all that stuff, it's going to be kind of neat. When you study the, the resurrected body of Jesus, he does a lot of cool stuff. <laughs> you know, so it's, it's something to look forward to. Um, he'll give us that kind of a resurrection body. It's a physical body, but it's not subject to disease or or death. It's a supernatural kind of glorified body. Um, so when you, when you stop and think of that, it's kind of a, a, a pretty interesting thing. And it doesn't matter, by the way, what happens to your body. Um, I mean, I know tradition says, you know, burial is the Christian way. That's fine. Okay. But, you know, whether you're buried 
or you die at sea and you're buried in the, in the ocean and your body's eaten by sharks or you're blew up in an explosion and you're all over the place, who knows, or, or you decompose in the grave. It doesn't matter. God has the ability to resurrect all those pieces and parts and put them you know, into this indestructible resurrection body. And so don't worry yourself at night about things like that. Well, I just want to close with this little illustration because I think it's, it's, it's good. Ironside was a, a, Harry Ironside was a wonderful pastor. And he pastored the, the famous Moody Memorial Church in Chicago. And whenever I think of our Christian life as something that's past, present, future, this kind of illustration pops up in my mind. And, and I want to share it with you this morning. Um, he told this when he was teaching through Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And it provides a similar outline, you might say, as far as past, present, and future of the Christian experience. And so Ironside one day was riding on the train in Southern California. And one Saturday, when a gypsy got on the train and sat beside him. How do you do, gentlemen? She said. You like to have your fortune told? Cross my palm with a silver quarter, and I will give you your past, your present, and your future. Are you very sure that you can do that? Ironside responded. You see, I'm Scottish, and I wouldn't want to spend a quarter and not get my full value for it. The gypsy was very earnest. Yes, gentlemen, I can give you your past, your present, and your future. I will tell you it all. Ironside then said this, It is not really necessary for me to have my future told because I have had it told already. It's written in a book. And by the way, I have the book in my pocket. The gypsy kind of pulled back. You have the book? It's written in a book? Yes, Ironside said. It's absolutely infallible. Let me read it to you. He then reached in his pocket. He pulled out his New Testament. He began to read from Chapter 2 of Ephesians. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and your sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the rulers of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath this is my past he said the woman had been startled when he pulled out the new testament from his pocket and was now trying to get away that is plenty that is plenty she protested i do not want to hear any more oh but wait ironside said there is more here is my present too But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. No more, no more, the gypsy protested. But, said Ironside, you must hear my future. And you're not going to have to pay me a quarter for it. I am going to give it to you for nothing. It says in order that the ages, in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. 
By now, the gypsy was halfway down the aisle of the train saying, I picked the wrong man. I picked the wrong man. I want to ask you this morning, what does your past, your present, your future look like? Christians are people who have had their past altered before they were dead in trespasses and sin, but now they are alive in Christ. Their present has been altered as well. They've been awakened by the, to the reality of God and have the spirit of Christ dwelling within them to help them discern and understand his holy word. And their future has changed as well. For in time, death will overcome and they will be raised in a new resurrected body like the resurrection body of Jesus Christ. And they will be with God and Jesus Christ forever. My question to you this morning, beloved, is are you a Christian? I I ask you by all means, answer that question of yourself. Father, we ask this morning that you would help us to remember that we are saved by grace. It's not something we've done. That it's by your glorious grace that any one of us can claim Christ. And yet, I fully believe that there may be some here who have yet to see that come to fruition in their own life. Lord, I pray that they would not rest until they rest in Christ Jesus. I pray that you would stir their heart. That you would cause them to be restless in their spirit until they answer affirmatively that question, do you belong to Christ? That they would come before you, a holy God, knowing that they're a sinner, pleading you, begging you to forgive them, to make them new, to cause this transformation that others have experienced to happen in their life. Lord, this isn't something we deserve. This is something that's granted by your grace and your mercy. And Father, we pray that you would help us to remember that as well as believers when we leave this building and go out into a lost and dying world who is yet to respond to the gospel of Christ. That we would be passionate and yet still be patient. That we would not place upon them a moral expectation that they cannot fulfill. But that we would come alongside them being willing to share the truth of the message of the glorious forgiving gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we're obedient to do so, I pray that some would turn to you by your grace and see this transformation take place in their own lives. Father, we thank you and we pray this morning that you would bless our fellowship after this time over in the fellowship hall, bless the food to our bodies. We pray that you would just give us a good day. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.